Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Breaking news. In just the past few minutes, the House voted to pass the debt limit bill. This is a huge relief for President Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and you could argue the global financial system. A vote could happen in the Senate as soon as tomorrow. We're going to take you live to Capitol Hill. Plus, first on CNN, the Justice Department has an audio tape of Donald Trump at a meeting in the summer of 2021 acknowledging that he kept a classified Pentagon document after he was out of office about a potential attack on Iran. Sources say he suggested he would like to share that info with a group of people at his golf club. But he was aware that there were limits to his ability to declassify documents. That, of course, is the opposite of what he later claimed, that he could just declassify anything by thinking about it. So what does this development mean for the special counsel's investigation? A lot more on that in a moment. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is here to tell us what we need to know about today's NASA hearing on UFOs, including video of an object that scientists say is totally unexplained. We'll show it to you. I don't understand. How can they just disappear? They have no means of transportation. No earthly means of transportation. Okay, but let's begin with our breaking news and CNN's Melanie Zanona live for us on Capitol Hill. Melanie, this debt limit bill just passed the House. 71 Republicans voted no, though. So tell us what happens next. Yeah, so now all eyes turn to the Senate where Chuck Schumer is planning to take the first procedural step tomorrow in order to tee this up for a vote. But in order to move quickly, it is going to require the cooperation of all senators. And while there are signals that there is some willingness to cooperate, it's going to take a little deal making and a little agreement. One of the things that they can do is offer some amendment votes, although those would be likely to fail, that would theoretically get all these lawmakers, even those who are opposed to the underlying bill on board, so they can try to move quickly on this. But Allison, I will tell you that this big bipartisan vote that we saw in the House tonight is only going to make it a lot easier in the Senate to move this along, to have more members come on board. And it really is a big victory for President Biden as well as Speaker McCarthy. And as you mentioned, it is a huge relief because it was not certain that they would get here. It was a long and rocky road, weeks of intense negotiations. So it looks like Congress is going to avert a crisis, but just barely, with only days to go until that June 5th deadline for a default, Allison. Okay, yes, not a moment too soon. Melanie, thank you very much for helping us with that breaking news. Okay, now let's turn to Donald Trump, captured on audio tape, talking about a classified Pentagon document about a possible Iran attack. This, it was after he left the White House. Sources say that this conversation 
took place at his golf club in New Jersey in July of 2021, and that the people that Donald Trump was talking to did not have security clearances to see classified information. So what does this mean for the criminal investigation into his handling of national security secrets? Let's bring in CNN's senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance. We also have John Sale, former Watergate prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, Jennifer Rogers, and national security analyst, Juliet Kayyem. Caitlin, I want to start with you. I imagine that this audio tape is of great interest to the special counsel. So do we know how this will affect the investigation? Well, Alison, we know it is something that the investigators have obtained and then they want to build up exactly what happened in this meeting and very likely why this document was in Donald Trump's hands. So one of the other things in this reporting, it was a whole team of us, Caitlin Collins, Paula Reed, and I, uh, we were able to confirm uh, that the person who Trump says provided him this document, so that's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, uh, during his presidency, this document is about plans the United States has uh, potentially to bomb Iran, if that is something that the president would so choose to do, which Donald Trump was talked out of during his presidency by Milley. But he has this document, uh, and it is a document uh, that the prosecutors have asked, or they at least have questioned Mark Milley um, in their criminal investigation of the mishandling of classified information. So they're looking at that. And then we also know that there is grand jury activity about what exactly happened in this meeting. So they have this audio tape, and we were able to confirm that there's a number number of people at Bedminster in July of 2021 who are with Donald Trump as he's being recorded, as he's talking about this plan that he says Milley provided to him that would undercut Milley, discredit Milley, and he's rustling around a paper, right? So on the audio tape, you can hear him rustling a paper. Uh, and those people, one of those people, Margot Martin, a communications aide to Donald Trump, has been into the grand jury to testify. So the Justice Department is putting some oomph behind this as recently as March. Um, and so this is something that they're interested in, obviously because of what the document is itself, something that he is apparently acknowledging on the tape is classified, that he wishes he could declassify or couldn't show more people widely uh, because it is classified, that he doesn't have the power to make it public at that time after he, left, he leaves the presidency. And that is also of interest in addition to the document itself. Here's what Donald Trump has said in the past about his ability to declassify, which is apparently undercut quite broadly by what is said on this tape. There doesn't have to be a process, as I understand it. You know, there's different people say different right. things. But as I understand, there doesn't have to be. If you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified, even by thinking about it. No, no, I don't have anything. I have no classified documents. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. So our sources are telling us that on this tape, it, it quite bluntly captures Donald Trump essentially recognizing that that is not the case, what he was telling Caitlin Collins in that um, town hall and in that previous interview. Now, I should say CNN has not heard this tape at this time. We just have had multiple sources describing to us what happened here. Uh, and then just last hour, Caitlin Collins was just able to ask, along with Abby Phillips, uh, Jim Trustee, the lawyer for Donald Trump, the person who's defending him in this case, working with the Justice Department, Trustee uh, basically gave his response to this story. He didn't deny that this tape exists. This is what he said instead. Did you know that this tape existed? And are there others? I am not going to try a case based on the government leaks, but we need to just recognize the significance of the moment, which is DOJ and FBI, or some combination of them, 
are engaging in a leak campaign. I'm not going to dignify the DOJ leak. When he left for Mar-a-Lago with boxes of documents that other people packed for him that he brought, he was the commander-in-chief. There is no doubt that he has the constitutional authority as commander-in-chief to declassify. It does not have to go through some sort of bureaucratic process to be declassified. But did he declassify this document that we're referring to? We're we're not going to try the case leak by leak. I'm not trying my case in the press. Now, Allison, one thing that we have learned, this this came from dogged source reporting and a lot of uh, experienced journalism, both on the legal side, as well as understanding what sort of things happen in a case like this. And one thing uh, that Trustee's talking about there is he's talking about the classification of documents, whether these documents are classified or not. Did Donald Trump declassify them? But at the end of the day, we know the law, one of the laws that the Justice Department has been looking at in this investigation on whether Donald Trump mishandled classified records or national security records. And that law only requires that these records be out of the hands of the protected uh, hands of the federal government in the hands of somebody who isn't authorized to have them where they might have them. And they don't even necessarily have to be classified at all. It just needs to be mishandled national defense information. Hmm. Allison? Caitlin, thank you for all of that. Let me bring in John Sale now. Um, John, you uh, at one time had been asked to join Donald Trump's legal team. You politely declined, I believe. But what did you think of his attorney, who you just heard on CNN, and give his rationale that basically um, there is no bureaucratic process that the president has to go through? Well, I think that's probably right, because it's similar to the pardon, that the con- there is a whole process for somebody to get a pardon. It's promulgated in the Code of Federal Regulations. Most people go through it, but the president doesn't have to do it if he doesn't want to. But I think we're missing the point. I think that the Espionage Act is what comes into play here. And that does not matter whether or not documents are classified. Uh, it's not the, uh, the spies and the James Bond part of the act. It is a 10-year felony to willfully uh, retain documents that pertain to the national defense. Well, my God, I mean, he's talking about Assuming the tape, we haven't heard the tape, but assuming the tape uh, reflects what the excellent reporting says it does, to be at a country club and be talking about plans for a possible military invasion of Iran. I mean, what could be more dangerous than that to the national defense? Yeah. And, you no, know, uh, General, General Petraeus uh, pled guilty to doing that. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump, although he's afforded the presumption of innocence, he's not above the law. Yeah. Um, John, I think that's very interesting that you're talking about the Espionage Act, and we'll get into that. But why are you saying that it's... it's? I, can you help clarify the thinking that he doesn't have to go through a bureaucratic process to declassify things? If you just think it in your head, don't you have to tell the apparatus that you are declassifying something? Why wouldn't he have to go through a bureaucratic process? Just help us understand. No, my point, there is an argument that some constitutional scholars say just the inherent power of the executive... He doesn't have to go through those processes. I'm not saying that argument's right, but I'm saying that the Espionage Act just bypasses that and, and doesn't give him the benefit of that defense. Okay. Uh, and I, this overcomes the what I would call the who cares defense because people may not care about uh, hush payments to a stripper, but they sure as heck are going to care about talking about military secrets at an unsecured country club. Um, okay. Thank you for explaining that. Caitlin, one last question before I bring in the rest of our panel. Do we know who made this audio tape? 
We don't. And we actually also don't know uh, exactly how the Justice Department was able to procure it. But we do know that there were two things happening at that time when Donald Trump was meeting with these people, with the people in this room. There were people around him who he wanted to have taping him, almost as an insurance policy, every time he was talking to journalists or doing interviews. And so there were tapes being made of Donald Trump talking to groups of people. Uh, his press aide, Margot Martin, was in that meeting. And then the other people in the meeting, they were working on a book. They were working on Mark Meadows' book, his former chief of staff at the end of the presidency. Uh, so it's very po plausible that they, too, uh, may have been recording the conversation. But we don't know at this time where the Justice Department got it from. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, let me bring in Jen and Juliet. Okay, a lot to dissect here. First, national security. Yeah. So if this really was about um, uh, an attack plan that was presented right. to the president when he was president from uh, the um, Joint Chiefs Chair, Mark Milley, um, about Iran... Your thoughts on what all that means? So it's not, it's, if it's only four pages, it's not, a, it's not a detailed plan. This isn't like the entire military was ready to pounce. Lots of ideas are thrown out by presidents, by national security advisors. The military is trained to provide some documents to give them a sense of, of how it might be done at the, at the sort of strategic level. This is not an operational plan. But the fact that it was asked for is classified. We're talking about it now because it was secret that that a president asked for what would it mean to to actually attack uh, Iran. That's a, that now now they know, now we know, now our allies know. I think the second thing about the national security issue is we tend to put this as a Trump issue. It is also a President Biden issue because the rest of the world is looking. They are looking at a Republican party that has not banished Trump. He is more likely than not, at least from the polling, to get the nomination. So if you're an ally and you're sharing information and you're thinking about what's this country like in 15 months, this is what it's like, right? This is a, a, a potentially future president, not just a past president, who is going to willy-nilly use the classified information, the, the secret information that our allies give us. And I worry, no proof yet, but I worry that if you're, if you're thinking about what's this, what does the United States national security apparatus look like a year from November, uh, or, um, it's very different than it looks like now. And, and, and it will have consequences for the Biden administration, too. Okay, so Jennifer, tell us what you, you think as you listen to all of this, in particular the Espionage Act versus the Presidential Records Act and everything that uh, the legal jeopardy that this could present. Yeah, so if it is as advertised, of course, we haven't heard it yet, but it, of course, is bad news for the former president, good news for prosecutors. It does potentially a few things, right? It expands the scope of the investigation. We've been looking at documents that were recovered in 2022 from Mar-a-Lago. This is now a document or at least information potentially passed at Bedminster in 2021. So expands the scope. Potentially a whole nother charge, right? We're talking about this particular document, information in that document. And as was being said before, you have the issue of a classified document. That's kind of one set of charges. And then you have this national defense issue under the Espionage Act. It doesn't actually require a document that's stamped classified that's mishandled, right? That's about giving over information, mishandling information. So you have potentially all new charges. Then you have the proof of intent. This is a great tape, if it exists, as we've heard, because it shows that he does understand that he can't just declassify by thinking it in his head. Things aren't automatically declassified. It helps them prove that. It debunks his defenses. And finally, recordings are like gold to prosecutors. I mean, this is why front and center in the Georgia case has always been the Raffensperger call, right? Because you hear the defendant in his own voice, in his own words, saying something that 
at the time of trial, he definitely doesn't want anyone to hear him saying, like here, basically debunking his own defenses. So gold for prosecutors. Friends, thank you for helping us understand all of this. Really appreciate all of your expertise. So what are the political implications of all of this for Donald Trump as he runs for a second term? My panel has thoughts. Okay, more on our CNN reporting. Sources say that federal prosecutors have obtained a 2021 audio recording of Donald Trump talking about a classified document that he kept after leaving the White House. Joining me now, we have CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. Juliet Kayyem is back with us. We also have former Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones and also former Trump White House communications director Anthony Scaramucci. Um, great to have all of you guys. Anthony, yeah. I'll start with you. You know how Donald Trump operates. Are you surprised that there is an audio tape of this? I'm not surprised, but I'm also not going to be surprised about the doubling and tripling down on the lie. You know, he's the guy that's caught with his hand in the cookie jar. You've got the photos. You've got the DNA. It's not my hand in the cookie jar. But the idea that he would want to share classified information with his guests at Bedminster Golf Club. The tremendous insecurity that he has. And I think that was the thing that people were always worried about with him. He's trying to show these people that he's in shock himself, that he has access to this information. And so he's sort of tipping it to them to make himself feel good about himself. It's like a reinforcement mechanism. And, Congressman, that he knew at the time he couldn't show it to them (laughs) because it was classified and he was no longer in office and he didn't have the power to declassify it. Yeah, this is not surprising, but it it does, for evidentiary purposes, establish that he's lying in terms of uh, his saying that he thought he could declassify or that he had already declassified these documents uh, by fiat, <laughs> not going through the traditional process of declassification. Just everybody remember, it works for him. Yeah. His, well, his MO and his methodology. Yes, it does. Yeah. It he, he, he may well be... Is baseball by everything he's saying. And likely will be prosecuted for. But in terms of whether there will be political ramifications, no. I mean, I don't even know that his being incarcerated would prevent him from being the Republican <laughs> Do you nominee. think this makes it more likely that the DOJ prosecutes? Oh, I think it is an indication of the of the fact that Jack Smith is close to uh, a, a prosecution to an indictment in particular, um, and that that is imminent. That's that's likely to happen. John Avalon. Yeah, I mean, this this establishes apparently the thing that's hardest to establish, which is intent. Right? Remember all that hand wringing. Well, how can we really know it's a lie if we don't know what's in his heart and mind? Well. I mean, you could look at the pattern, uh, or in this case, you apparently have him on tape bragging about having the documents that he denies having and knowing that they're classified and he's not supposed to have them, or secret in this case. So, yeah, if you're going to enforce the law without fear of favor, you would bring charges. And the court of you know, public opinion is what he defies. Court of law is tougher to spin your way out of. Here's what the Trump campaign spokesperson says about all of this. The DOJ's continued interference in the presidential election is shameful, and this meritless investigation should cease wasting the American taxpayers' money on Democratic political objectives. Any thoughts on that, Juliet? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's at, right. It's it, it's, it's predictable. Uh, They're going to push a narrative that this is just a political attack having to do with the election. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Democrats were considered careless about national security and Republicans were like the mm-hmm. serious party. And I think uh, uh, the Republicans, whatever happens in the primary, um, are more likely than not to be stuck with a candidate or someone who is 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 in front for the next 14 months. 
who is not just a past danger to our national security and classified information, but a future one. And I don't think the Democrats, the re- let me just put it different. I don't think the Democrats can stop this. Uh, it is going to take the party taking its historic role in protecting America to begin to understand the, the danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the danger he is. It's a danger. Yeah. It's not like a mm. slip. Yeah. It's a total danger what he's doing. I, I, they won't do it. Though. I know. I, I do want to make the observation that this so-called weaponization committee that House Republicans have set up, which is really an obstruction of justice to committee. To find out if the, because the, they claim the FBI was weaponized. The, 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 the like FBI that. and the Department of Justice and, and, and now, you know, Kevin McCarthy recently saying that what he would, he would find uh, mm-hmm. the Republican uh, FBI director Chris Ray in yeah. contempt. All of this has been in preparation for the prosecution of Donald Trump by the Department of Justice to create an environment where when that ultimately happens, uh, you know, the base of the Republican Party is going to say, see, I, I knew that uh, these agencies yeah. were, were weaponized. Yeah, 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 hold on. I just want to tell you one. I want to, while we have you, I just want to ask you one more thing because we also have other breaking news. And that is that the debt ceiling bill just passed through the House. So let me play for you what former President Donald Trump just said about that on a radio show. I would have uh, taken the default if you had to, if you mm-hmm. didn't get it right. But that's not where they were going, and uh, I think it was an opportunity, but it was also, uh, they got something done. Kevin worked very hard. Everybody worked very hard. I mean, with a lot of good intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have taken a different stance, but uh, it's done. They've got the vote. We knew they were going to have the vote, yep. and uh, we'll get it fixed in two years. Yep. Uh, your thoughts, Anthony? So, I mean, there were times in 2016 where you'd walk back onto the plane with him and say, okay, why did you say that? He said, oh, well, you know, it sounded good at the time. He, he doesn't believe any of that. And so he's saying that. What part that, doesn't he believe? Because there were two different things. One was that was great. <laughs> well, they got it done. And one was I well, would have no, taken no, the default. No, no, no. He's, he's got to praise Kevin McCarthy because Kevin McCarthy's been in his back pocket for this whole time, particularly after the J6 incident. Mm-hmm. So he's doing that. But he's also saying that he wouldn't he would have taken the default because he's trying to be a bomb thrower in the Republican Party and he's trying to scare all of them. You see, see that and they are scared. Okay, so they'll never do what they're supposed to do, which is rally together and say this is an existential threat to the United States, a threat to the American democracy and global civilization. And we're going to take a stand against them and get them out of the party. They won't do that. And those are all signals from him to let them know that he stole the big bully at the lunch table. They should be very afraid of him and his base. And that's why he's saying that nonsense that he doesn't believe. Because remember, he ran up the deficit $8 trillion in four years. And every time the debt ceiling came up, he was moving very quickly, three years, whatever it was, to get the debt ceiling passed. So he doesn't believe any of that. Uh, But he's a great showman. He's got very good political instincts. And he's very dangerous. So let's just call it for what it is so that we can try to stop him from regaining the presidency. Okay, guys, stick around. We have to take a very quick break because human extinction, that's what we're talking about next. That's what experts are warning artificial intelligence could lead to. John Avalon is going to give us a reality check on all of this. We have talked a lot about artificial intelligence on this program, particularly the dangers of it, like how ChatGPT tried to get a reporter to leave his wife. But now tech experts warn that we could be on the verge of the apocalypse. 
John Avalon gives us a reality check. John? Hey, Allie. You know, how much of what we talk about will actually matter in a year's time, let alone 10 or 20? Well, it does seem clear that the rise of AI, artificial intelligence, will be one of the stories that define our times. And I'm betting 2023 will be seen as the year that it finally started to go mainstream. As you know, this technology is moving incredibly fast, along with its potential for good and for evil. Now, that's why a 22-word statement issued by some of the leaders in AI should snap you out of any short attention span stupor you may be in. Here's what they said, quote, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. You got that? Risk of extinction. Now, this is not a cause for panic as much as it is a call for action. And unusually, some tech business leaders are begging for government regulation. Here's the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, at a recent congressional hearing. It is essential that powerful AI is developed with democratic values in mind, and this means that U.S. leadership is critical. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong, uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. Okay, John, right there. Right there. I have to interrupt because that's the terrifying warning. And so what, are we supposed to do something about this or just sit and wait for the apocalypse? I am glad you asked. That is the right question, Allie, because we all need to move from fixating on problems to finding solutions. There are a lot of proposals right now. And given that the average senator grew up in an era where mimeograph machines were considered current technology, it's understandable that some folks are skeptical about their ability to take on AI oversight. Quote, technology is moving quicker than Congress could ever hope to keep up with, admits Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Now, he's updated a proposal to create a federal digital platform commission modeled on the FDA. Other business leaders from IBM and the former CEO of Google have also weighed in with their own suggestions. Take a listen. There must be clear guidance on AI uses or categories of AI-supported activity that are inherently high risk. No person anywhere should be tricked into interacting with an AI system. Congress can mitigate the potential risks of AI without hindering innovation. This is a case where the industry needs to do a little self-reflection and the government needs to be a bit more aggressive. The U.S. should do this in such a way that's consistent with free speech. I'm in favor of free speech of humans and not of robots. Now, look, this is all happening fast. But in a larger sense, we're scrambling to catch up with something that was anticipated by science fiction writers decades ago. Because it was back in 1942 that Isaac Asimov came up with his nerdishly famous Three Laws of Robotics, which were designed to ensure that robots did not harm human beings. So if Asimov could anticipate the problems we're dealing with 80 years ago, surely we can proactively focus on wise constraints for a technology that promises to be both a benefit and a threat to life as we know it. And that's your reality check. Okay, John, thank you very much. Come back over here so we can have a conversation about it. Also joining our panel tonight is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. Great to have you here. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have a very big brain. And you think all the time. You uh, have a fat head. Not at all. She kind of and said that. You think uh, about the universal uh, impact of things. Does mm-hmm. AI scare you? So there's part of me where it doesn't scare me at all, if I may share that piece of me. Yeah. Because as a scientist, especially as a, a scientist who specializes in fields that deeply rely on the power of computing, I've seen the power of computing grow exponentially as it applies to my work. 
And we, we've been using neural nets to, to, for the computer to make decisions about data that's coming in at a rate that we cannot otherwise keep up with as human beings. So, so uh, we're, we're in the same sandbox as AI. We've been that for decades, okay? So now watch what happens. So all of a sudden, the AI power of computing crosses a line in the sand. Now it can write your term paper. Now people lose their lunch <laughs> over this. I sort of feel bad I missed out on that. <laughs> okay, so, no, oh, it writes your term paper. You want me to feel bad for you about that? It's, it's we in the physical sciences and the military, by the way, um, anytime c computers be became more powerful, we said, great. Let's have it do stuff that we yeah. can't do, don't want to do, aren't, don't have the ability to do. You set it off too fast and then think of something else. It continued to advance our understanding of the universe with the computer as a tool. That's really good. That's really good, and it's yeah. really comforting me, comforting me. But why don't you worry about the dark underbelly of it? Like uh, the dark. No, we, we always can and should. What I'm saying is it crossed into the world of liberal arts by composing your term paper, and all of a sudden it's headlines everywhere. And that just was odd to me, because because computers beat us at chess long ago, and it beat us at Go, and beat us at Jeopardy. It, it's, it's, it's been <laughs> taking our lunch money from the beginning, and all of a sudden, liberal artists, it touches them, and we got the whole world has to yeah. run for the hills? Yeah. So, so, that's, so that's the part of me that says, uh, I, that's the part of me. Okay, okay? so now, now, about the existential risk. Is it fundamentally different? By the way, that quote, that 22-word quote, was perfect. Is it fundamentally different from when computers had the power to launch missiles? No. You put in checks and balances yep. so that that does not happen. Yep. I was on a Pentagon board, where the, the uh, uh, Defense Innovation Board, where we addressed the role of AI in kill decisions. Do you want AI deciding whether the military is going to kill someone. No, you don't. So you put a human being in the track, yeah. okay? So that the computer is not autonomous in that decision. There are ways to mitigate yeah. what might it's, be it's, catastrophic and existential. I'm feeling better suddenly. Yeah. Good, 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 no, good, good. I, I thought that message was unbelievably careless unhelpful. Like, let's just scare everyone. We created this thing. Now help us because we don't know what to do. I, I, I am old fashioned. I believe in the human species and our capacity to assert agency over this. That is quite It can come. It can also be used for good. I mean, when I think about disaster management, crisis management, movement of things, getting things to people in need, all of that is going to benefit. And this quote comes out and it's like everyone is just freaking out as if we're well i mean it know, is from the creators of the technology yeah, who are yeah. sounding the alarm that it could be the end of civilization so yeah, that's why i think also, you have to take they, it they seriously. are also investors they are also people who are uh this is a commercial enterprise i don't mean to be cynical but i'm kind of sounding kind of cynical like i mean give us a solution that doesn't terrify, well, you know, okay. everyone's Let's mother. Go ahead, I'll just say this. You want to commit a crime, you have a small group of people commit the crime. And if you put too small of a group of people in charge of the checks and balances, it will be a disaster for the civilization. And so you've got to get a very wide berth of people involved because a small group of people can get malevolent. And we know that. We know that from history. We saw that in Nazi Germany. You need a very large group yes. of people with, with protect the okay. civilization. With transparency and scientists, yeah. avoiding industry capture, all that. This all can right. be great good, but let's be realistic so, about a, the warning. A tandem moral code that evolves along with the science. And the science is moving fast. Yes. So, so get on it. 
Okay. Yeah. I don't have any all. problems with that that's, moving alongside right. it. Yeah. But but one of those messages, one of was let's put a moratorium for six months. That's not going to happen Doc, because the rest of the world. My, I'm going to send you my paper tomorrow. I want an A from you. <laughs> and have it produced in about seven seconds. <laughs> the, the, the chat BGPT yeah, wrote yeah, it, that. It'll be the first A that I've gotten in 35 years. That's awesome. Um, thank you. I feel better. I right. really appreciate that. Thank you, friends. All right. All right. Meanwhile, NASA holding a public hearing about UFOs today. Obviously, we have to hear what Neil deGrasse Tyson thinks about UFOs and how does he explain the unexplainable, inexplicable, whichever word it is. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is out there. (laughs) Spooky. The Defense Department is studying more than 800 unidentified anomalous phenomena. That's over the past 27 years. This came out at a public hearing today with members of a NASA task force. But they say that of those 800 cases, only 2 to 5% are considered truly unexplained. But what are those? My panel is back, including Neil deGrasse Tyson, author of Starry Messenger. Two to five percent. That's a lot, Neil, of things that they can't explain. NASA scientists cannot explain. Here's one that they showed today that they have no explanation for. Here's the video that they showed in this hearing today. Let me pull it up. Let's see if we can figure out what this is. Okay. Okay. Oh, do you see that thing just fall down? Where did that thing go? Hmm. Seems like they should be able to find that one. It just kind of like fell out of frame. <laughs> that one that one doesn't seem as mysterious to me as some of the other things, but that was one that they showed that they can't explain. Do you have... Oh, oh, I see. oh, oh there I see. it is. Uh, oh, I know. Okay, Aww. I mean, I think that's just a football. I think that was just somebody tossing a football around. Um, what did you we think? We should put you on the panel. If you... You're right. I mean, I, that, with, with genius insights like that, why isn't NASA following that? Well, so, so I have two... Reflections on this. Mm-hmm. One, as a scientist, if you're an active research scientist, you live on the boundary between what is known and unknown in the universe. So if you live a day where there's something that you cannot explain, that's the day you live for. Just think about that. If, you could, if we explain everything, there'd be no science. We'd be done. So yes, the universe brims with mysteries. So to a scientist, if three or four out of 800 objects cannot be explained... That okay. That 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 sparks curiosity, and that's why they're the panels, and that's why. And by the way, NASA. Just to make this clear, NASA has been looking for life in the universe for decades, for at least forty-five years. The Viking mission that landed on Mars had 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 scoops and things to test for life. Uh-huh. So it's not like NASA's not interested in life. Okay, this has been a major activity and driver of the spending of the hardware. Of everything. So if they had the goods, they would come right out to the American of public right course. now? Of course. 100%. No problem. Because the, but, We've had alien civilizations visiting. We just want to give you that announcement. Oh, <laughs> cool with that? No, no, well, no, come no, on. no, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The people who want to think that we have been visited or have found it, um, it's just odd. Because how, you know the number of smartphones in the world right now? It's about six billion. And yeah. people catch things all the time, UFOs on their phones all the time. Well, well, well what I'm saying is, no, no, yeah, it's right. Oh, by the way, of course, UFOs got rebranded as UAP. I know, but I still go with UFOs. Okay, but Old yeah, school. who are they fooling? They're not yeah. fooling yeah. anybody. We know that's a They're UFO. They're not fooling anybody. Exactly. Right, okay. So, uh, just to be clear, yeah. if there's a light in the sky or just something that darts across, okay, yeah. fine, let's find out more about it. But because you don't know what it is, 
doesn't give you carte blanche to say, I know that it's visiting aliens from outer space okay. observing us. Right. Okay. You, you can't go from, I don't, the you means unidentified mm-hmm. to I have identified it. But what about this one? Here's go. one. Okay, this is a, these are U.S. Navy pilots, okay? Mm-hmm. They said Are they human? They're human Then they have pilots. human susceptibilities to everything. They say on. that they couldn't, that they've never seen anything do this before. It defied aerodynamic mm-hmm. laws. It shoot, wait, wait, we're not at the good part yet. Watch this, watch this. So there it is. It's Okay, it's not moving. It's, oh, wait. Hold on. Maybe they're saying something. Uh, okay, so what's that right there? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I'm, and I'm okay with that. That's my point. Okay. 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 Either it's wait, wait. It's it could be a, a detector issue. Uh, something with the the there could be Vaseline on the lens. That's something. Because why is your best image a fuzzy monochromatic tic tac in restricted navy airspace all over the earth? Do you realize a million people are airborne at any given moment with a window? All right. Don't you think if aliens were invading Earth? This could be crowdsourced to everybody's smartphone. So what came out in the the conference today, I sat through the whole thing, okay? What came out was a suggestion that maybe, by the way, that panel was an independent panel. None of them are NASA employees. Okay. Okay, that's a a FACA rule thing. Okay, so what they suggested maybe is that NASA create an app that you run on your smartphone. You say, if you think you see an alien... Do this with your smartphone and take the picture and then send it to this clearinghouse. And then we have data from multiple sides, and that will help build the, the, the data case for the unknown aerial phenomena okay. or, or anomalous phenomena. Say something comforting about it like you did with AI. Say um, something comforting about it because I think okay. people don't know, okay, but I gotta, they want to hear I get, comfort. i got to get through something you're Mr. That's, comfortable, that's so a little, i got to get through something that's a little uncomfortable, okay? Mm-hmm. It seems to me that if we were being visited by aliens, we wouldn't need congressional hearings to establish that fact. <laughs> you just see, just, I, I'm just spitballing here. I'm just, I'm just thinking, okay? Yeah, we would know that this was that uh, Correct. Yeah. Billions of photos are uplifted yeah. to the I'm internet like, every day. Wait, wait, wait. Billions of photos. And, and cats, so, cats that jump from, from a table to a, to a couch and fall go viral. Yeah. You think if someone caught an alien, that won't go viral? Okay. Uh, I like An it. alien. I'm not talking that's about coming. lights in the sky. I'm talking about aliens. I think that's it's not, it's not that comforting. comforting. He's a very comforting person. <laughs> yes. But it's really not I'll give you some comfort. I'll give you some comfort. All right. I want, I want, I'll give you some comfort. I want him to tell us something that he really knows that's comforting. I'll give you some comfort. Ready? Here it is. Here it is. Ready? I'm not convinced that we as humans are smart enough to be of interest to any aliens at all. Okay, I got another one. I got one. I have another one. Here's another one. I know it's quick. I got a quick one. Ready? The entire species. Have you seen the space debris that's orbiting Earth? Yes, I'm Okay, so I don't think we've been visited by aliens yet because they saw the space debris and said, What the hell are you guys doing down there? We're not coming anywhere near your planet because you're embedded in the middle of your own garbage. Okay, so, comforting, not comforting. But I agree. That's, <laughs> a, that's a mixed but, message, but, but, but you know, I like this. The, but the, yeah, the, the truth of the matter is, is that people shouldn't worry about it. I think that's the number one message. Okay. Okay? Whatever it is, it's been observable for multiple decades, and they shouldn't overly worry about it. Okay, well, here's a, an interesting transition. Here's something you are worried about. <laughs> you feel like your airline seat is shrinking? Congress also wants to do something <laughs> about that. that <laughs> 
Flying economy has been likened to being packed like a sardine. Well, now two Senate Democrats are asking the Biden administration to take a look at airline seat sizes. This bill would require the FAA to conduct new evacuation tests with more realistic conditions that actually include the size of and space between the seats. I'm back with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Juliet Kayyem. Okay, um, I'm 5'3". What's the problem with airline seats? Well, that, Are they that, uncomfortable that, or something? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like them? I'm so not 5'3". Uh, and so... Uh, I'm somewhere in between. <laughs> so just... Uh, it's odd that now people are worrying about the seats. Uh, and have we checked to see whether just Americans' rear ends have gotten bigger over the decade? That's what you're Wait, concerned can I, about. Can I, in defense, Is that why we're complaining in now? In defense of, got fat of, asses? of the larger, um, it, this is the reason why this is done is because all the testing done for these darn evacuations, yes. allegedly, that will save us in a crash are done with about 70 passengers on a plane. So it's like, no, when was the last time you were on a plane with 70, just 70 passengers? I mean, they're more and packed. They're, we are, we live in a packed world. And so the, the question is, or packed air, airplanes, the question is, is can those packed airplanes actually evacuate? And if they can't, maybe we should rethink, you know, how we're thinking about evacuation or when evacuations would occur. This is in the point oh 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 one you know, percent likelihood yep. that you are going to be able to survive a crash it and happens. actually evacuate. It does Sully. happen. It does. Uh, the Hudson River. Okay, got it. So, our, but, but just to be also, clear, you're yeah. not all lining up in file order to no. exit one. There are multiple exits on the sides yeah. of the plane. Yes. So you don't have to go the full length of the plane to get past everybody else. You just mm. go, to go, go to your nearest exit, which might be behind you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. So, There's a light motif but, here. But yeah. I got just a, a point about you yeah. being 5'3". I had this idea that they knew, if you're traveling alone, solo, uh-huh. and they knew your height, that there was a seat appropriate for your height so that everybody had the same comfort level. Because oh. most of our height difference, yes. of human height difference, is in our legs. It's not in our torso. Yes. That's why we can all sit on three chairs, and we're all looking at each yeah. other in the eye, we just yet go I'm down a foot taller than you. That's right. Okay? So but, in a chair, the height doesn't matter. But the leg room, so put me in a place where I'm as comfortable as you are, yes. and you can pack people so that everyone is equally as comfortable. That's just brilliant. But I also feel like you should invent that since it doesn't exist. <laughs> so, no, but that yeah. would be a way think, to yeah. equalize this issue. There you go. Because yeah. little children don't need whole big old area. And you don't either, right? Right. right. I, That's good. I okay, quickly. Say, I, I don't think it... My sense is that people's discomfort on planes has to do with the fact that people talk on planes to strangers. And my goal... <laughs> my ideal airlines yeah. is one in which no one actually speaks. Okay, got it. So you want a <laughs> silent airline totally. and you want less junk in the trunk. But, no, but, but also, I think what's really going on here... The, 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 the subtext here... <laughs> yes. The subtext yes. is... We're packed in like sardines. Yes. And, and if the, and if the talk, temperature gets a talk. little hot yes. or a little cold, people get triggered. Their, their patience levels get triggered. And we get all these viral videos of yeah. fights breaking out right. on airplanes. Yes. And so it's, I think it's really about that. Okay. And so we got to have stop stop the fighting on the and, airplanes. And, and, and great, stop, great. Use your viral video down. to take a picture of the UFO out your window. Yeah. Good. Yes. Yeah. Worked yeah. it around. Give, give circle. Give some, Give give the people yeah. something that they want. Fantastic. Right. And don't don't talk. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, guys. Don't talk to me. And, and if you're, you're baby, don't cry. That's got your, your one. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're wonderful. Thank you, guys. Great Bye. to see you. Coming up, some of our favorite reporters are here with the stories they're working on for tomorrow. Hi, 
everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have our great lineup of reporters here with me. We have Athena Jones, Miguel Marquez, Omar Jimenez, and Elena Treen. We also have Caitlin Polance joining us from Washington with all of the news out of there. So we start this hour with CNN's reporting on former President Trump acknowledging on audio tape that he still had a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran after he was president. Okay, so Caitlin, tell us what we know. Tell us more about this audio tape, what's on it, and what this means for the investigation moving forward. Well, Allison, it is an audio tape that the Justice Department has, the special counsel investigation that is looking into Donald Trump, whether he mishandled national security information, classified documents, and also whether he obstructed justice as the Justice Department was trying to get all of those documents back. And so this audio tape is quite significant for several reasons. And it's not just me saying that. There are sources that were speaking to our team saying, yeah, this is very important. This is a big piece of evidence that the Justice Department has now gotten. They're asking witnesses about it. Uh, They're getting grand jury testimony about what happened. And this incident uh, at Bedminster, this is a meeting where Donald Trump is talking to aides of his and some people who are working on a book, a sympathetic book, um, for his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. He's talking to them. There are recordings being made of this meeting, and he's talking about a plan uh, that he believes would help him look good and his former, uh, or his, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who still is the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, that he believed that it would make Milley look bad because it is a document that the Pentagon would have prepared about a plan to bomb Iran. And so Donald Trump is talking about this document, which clearly is national defense information classified potentially. Um, And we do believe that he understands it's classified and was still classified. He's waving it around. So there's that. And then on top of that, on this tape, we haven't heard the tape itself, uh, and we don't know the exact words he's using, but all of the sources that are speaking to Caitlin Collins and Paula Reed and I about what is captured on this tape um, indicate that Donald Trump is clearly understanding that this is a document uh, that's classified that he, when he was president, didn't take the steps he needed to take to declassify it uh, and wishes that he could share it further, and yet he he can't uh, because it's protected information. And Caitlin, it's it's Omar here. Uh, I, I know this reporting is in part at least tied to, uh, you know, recording or at least a meeting out of out of Bedminster in New Jersey, when I know a lot of the recent reporting has focused on uh, the handling of documents down in Mar-a-Lago. Does that say anything about, about the nature of this investigation? If, I don't know, I think before, again, we were very focused on Mar-a-Lago, but clearly the scope seems to be beyond just w- what was at that property. Yeah, totally, Omar. So whenever we were pursuing this story, we actually had to really think about how it completely changed our understanding, at least. Maybe not the Justice Department's understanding of what they were pursuing, but it really does open up not just the map of where the Justice Department has to look to follow documents, that they have to look at what happened at Bedminster, look at what happened at Mar-a-Lago, where all of these documents were being taken, where they were at various times with Donald Trump. But they also are looking at a period of time that is much earlier than the time that much of the public reporting has focused on, right? So much of this investigation we knew about because the Trump team sent back 15 boxes of documents in January of 2022. So that's several months, like a half a year after this meeting that's captured on audio takes place. They send back boxes of documents, there are classified documents in them, and then months later, that's when the Justice Department goes back to the Trump team and says, 
we need you to turn over any more classified documents that you have in your possession anywhere. And that's when things really heat up at Mar-a-Lago specifically. There's these questions about our boxes moved out of storage rooms. That leads to uh, the FBI going into Mar-a-Lago under a court authorization to do that search there, finding even more classified documents. And so much of our conversation has been about 2022, what happened at Mar-a-Lago, because that's what's been visible to us. But really, the Justice Department has always very likely been trying to track what happened to these documents, no matter where they went, in Trump's possession after he left the presidency, whether that's Florida or not, and also what happened crucially as much in 2021 before there was even a criminal investigation as what ha- as what is happening after the criminal investigation begins. Caitlin, Miguel here. Um, I'm feeling a little triggered because we saw so much of this during the Mueller investigation, so many scoops, scoop after scoop. It was hard to put it all together. And when it all came together, finally, it didn't turn into anything. But can you give us the the, the big picture. There's obviously two investigations that Jack Smith is looking into, the documents and January 6th. Do you have a sense of, are we at, can we see the light at the end of the tunnel on either, both of these? Any sense of what the timing will be uh, on these investigations? Well, I'm not going to predict what the Justice Department is going to do, whether they're going to charge a case or not. That's going to be up to them, and that's a hard decision that and the Attorney General has to make. But if you look back at the Mueller investigation, as it was nearing its end, there were many people charged with crimes, convicted of crimes, pleading guilty to crimes in the Mueller investigation who were close confidants to Donald Trump. But at the end of the investigation, One of the people that was coming in was Attorney General Bill Barr, who was clearly of the mindset uh, that there was never an underlying crime. We knew that because he had said it in public uh, letters, that he didn't believe that there was an underlying crime that should have been investigated there. That is a different circumstance than what we have here, uh, because there are very well-established crimes uh, around national security documents, the protection of classified records. And so this question of were these documents mishandled, that's something that the Justice Department is very familiar with. Trump is no longer president, and so he doesn't have the same protections he has uh, that the Justice Department gave to him whenever he was being investigated during Mueller. And then on top of that, um, there are these additional obstruction things that we know that they are looking into that led to that search. And, you know, nothing ever got close to a court-authorized search of the president's home or any of his properties in the Mueller investigation. It was very friendly. You know, we're handing over documents. That is not this. Yeah, Caitlin, I'm, I'm glad that you reminded everybody of all of that. And I'm happy for Miguel's question about it. I mean, you're such a great reporter and you keep so much in your head at all <laughs> times. And I'm sure that you're getting all sorts of different scoops or bits of information every single day. And so I just have to believe that with this one, you know, when you heard that there was an audio tape with President Trump's voice on it, does that put it in a different category for you? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's different um, than what we normally hear about, where people are recreating things, being brought into grand juries to testify and, and speaking from their memory, perhaps. But, you know, Allison, stories like this don't arrive fully formed. They are the types of things that reporters like me work on for days or weeks. And a lot of it, you know, I I think of it often like solving a mystery. You hear little pieces uh, of a story. And in fact, there were little hints of this 
in other publications and then also in our publication uh, and among a lot of the reporters here, we had been hearing about uh, reports that witnesses were being asked about Mark Milley. Couldn't really make sense of that initially. Um, we were hearing, uh, we know that there was a New York Times report about other instances that people were being asked about related to Donald Trump showing documents and certain specific documents seeming, seeming of some sort of military nature. And so it took a while for me to get to the point where I realized, oh, there could be an audio tape there. Uh, and then, you know, there were already many reporters on this story with, with the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. And ultimately, Paula Reed, Caitlin Collins, and I were able to really work together as a team uh, to get this across the finish line. But you don't really know what you have until you talk to as many people as you can, or at least try to talk to as many people as you can. That's just how it works. Kaylin, I so appreciate, and I know our viewers do too, um, you peeling back the curtain on your process because not everybody does understand what we do and how we get little, you know, pieces of information here and there and try to put together the puzzle as Caitlin was just explaining. And I think that sometimes people think that these things come to us fully baked <laughs> and they're not. And you have to do a lot of due diligence and a lot of digging and waiting. And you don't know if it's ever going to be ready for broadcast, but then uh, there's a moment where it is. So Caitlin, thank you very much for all of the great reporting and obviously we will continue to follow this story very closely. There was other breaking news tonight. The House tonight passing the debt limit deal in a mm. big bipartisan victory <laughs> <laughs> that Miguel's taking very personally. Oh. Uh, and so is God. President Biden and Speaker McCarthy. Uh, so what will it take to get it fully across the finish line? We'll talk about that next. <laughs> All right, you know the conversation that we have virtually every night about the debt ceiling? Well, friends, that endless conversation may be coming to an end because Woo. tonight the House voted to pass the debt ceiling bill 314 to 117. And Elena has been following this story for us. Elena, I know it's now going to the Senate. Is our long national nightmare almost over? It is almost over. And we will not have to have, keep having this conversation night after night. Uh, yeah, the House did it. And it was a struggle to get there, it was weeks of questions of whether we would default on our debt, um, whether McCarthy and President Biden could pull this off. But they got a deal, and tonight it passed through the House. It was a blowout vote, bipartisan, um, most members of Congress and both parties voting for this bill. Uh, and now it heads to the Senate. And, and there's no question that it will pass the Senate. I never want to give the certainty <laughs> yeah. as a reporter. We were just talking about this with Caitlin. Um, but I'm, I mean, yeah, it's going to pass the Senate. We are going to avoid default. I think the only question now is when and not if. They could pass it as early as tomorrow, which I know all of the reporters in D.C., and I'm normally there with them on Capitol Hill, are like praying that they get their weekend finally, um, <laughs> as, all are, as are all the members. Um, it could also drag into Saturday or Worst case scenario, maybe early next week. But June 5th is the deadline that the Treasury Department said they will default. The government will default on its debt if they do not pass this. Uh, it looks like we're in the clear. And that next week on your show, Allison, this will not be a conversation anymore. <laughs> they will have done it and yeah. moved on. We, we talked about, talk about this being a national nightmare, though, but it's a national nightmare that is a recurring nightmare. It happens every few years with divided government. So that is a real question. When does this end? And is there... You know, where does this discussion stand on getting rid of the debt limit entirely since it's not about new spending, it's about paying uh, for the bills that have already been you know, a 100%. No, it's such a good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because it's also the debate that's happening in Congress. I mean, a lot of 
members think, a lot of Democrats uh, think that this is not, it, this doesn't make sense to keep going through this process year after year. However, I mean, now they're going to be raising the debt ceiling until 2025. So they get an extra year. Next year, we won't have to worry about the debt ceiling. But you're totally right. This is the debt ceiling is about bills that they've already passed and, appro- and money they've already appropriated and making sure the government can pay its bills on time. What happened with this current debt limit fight between the president and House Republicans was a question over budget. And that's where a lot of this got pulled into. And I know we've talked about this, um, you know, repeatedly on the show, but President Biden and Democrats have repeatedly said, clean debt ceiling. We, this is an obligation but that we have. that's not what ended up happening. And it's not what they ended up happening. They did end up negotiating. There's a lot in this bill. Yeah. They did end up so negotiating. But they negotiated on the budget, the not on the debt, though. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. But, but it was t- tied together in a way that they did. They said they weren't going to do. I don't know if it's tied this, is the right will word. Will this but. complicate the actual appropriations process going forward when they actually have to spend the money for the future? It shouldn't. I mean, I think what they did here is this is the kind of debate that they thought they would have later this year and more toward the fall and in September when, you know, the fiscal year um, ends at the end of September. Um, But instead, they laid a lot of this out in this bill. And I know we have a... um, a graphic showing some of what's in it. I, th- I think it's just helpful to walk through what they did <laughs> in the budget items. Um, they're cutting IRS spending. Uh, they are lifting, um, or excuse me, keeping spending cuts in place, but adding a spending budgetary cap. Um, a lot of, you know, preserving some of the cuts to domestic spending that Republicans wanted. Uh, the Biden student loan forgiveness plan that Republicans had wanted to gut remains intact. That is still in here. And a lot of these things cost a ton of money. There's also new work requirements for some social safety net programs. That was a big thing that Democrats are really upset about. And I have to say, what's in this bill is something that is definitely a compromise and something that both sides are unhappy with. We know from our conversations with Republicans and Democrats a lot alike, a lot of them are unhappy with where this bill landed. Republicans think Democrats got, got too much. Democrats think Republicans got too much. Um, but it passed tonight through the House, and the main goal was to avoid a default. And I, so I think people who may not follow the uh, debt ceiling negotiations as closely as I think we do. We're forced to. I know, I know we're forced to. Uh, But, you know, I I think an outsider looking in would say, all right, here's another one of those big congressional fights that said and, and proclaimed that, oh my gosh, this is the one where the entire government goes down. And lo and behold, here we go, a few days before the, the June 5th deadline in this case, we got it solved, at least I halfway, I, w- I would say. I mean, halfway. Thank you for recognizing me. But, just as I said that all along. I yeah. knew it was the boy who cried wolf because we've lived this movie before. <laughs> we've seen this movie before, but this time did feel different. Well, and so and so that's that's my question here, that, okay, now that we've gotten past, again, halfway, I'm not going to say gotten past, gotten halfway to the point where real Americans' lives and pocketbooks, um, you know, would be significantly affected, why was this fight different, mm-hmm. at least politically? Because uh, to your point, it did feel a little different, but it's hard to know if that's just recency bias of us going through it. Like, why was, why was this? It was, it was different. Um, and I will say, you know, you know, you always think something's never going to happen until it happens. And I I was worried that this might be the time. And I will say also the treasury department, secretary Yellen ended up, the date was being able to be moved back to, to June 5th. And if it was still June 1st, we would have seen a default. So I'm just saying it could have happened, but we didn't, it didn't. Um, but it is different because of the divided government that they have and the small majorities they have in both the House 
and the Senate. They needed to have a compromise. And right now, government is, I'd argue, maybe more divided than ever. And if not more divided than ever, pretty darn close to that. It is very partisan in Washington, D.C. The two sides farther apart than they've ever been. And in the House, you know, it's a very tight majority. So if McCarthy had to push this through, he needed Republicans and Democrats to get this through. He would never have had a bill that only Republicans would support because it was going to have President Biden's needing to sign off of it, sign off on it when it gets to his desk and also have Democrats in the Democratic-controlled Senate pass it. And so um, that's really what the problem was. And I think, honestly, if you look at a lot of the people, the conservatives in the House who are railing against McCarthy and railing against this bill, they're the type of people that would have never wanted to sign off on Mm -hmm. any sort of bill that had President Biden's input and having his team work on it. So that's really why I think this year um, it was more controversial than we've seen. Because even as loud as they were, the the, the margin of the actual passing mm-hmm. was, was pretty large yeah. here. Exactly. Yeah. And let that be our last word on it. <laughs> 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 All right. Meanwhile, the race for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination is about to get more crowded. Omar is going to tell us. Two of the big names in the Republican Party plan to announce their candidacies next week. You'll hear it here first. The 2024 GOP presidential race is about to get more crowded. We're learning that former Vice President Mike Pence will throw his hat into the ring next Wednesday. That's ahead of a CNN town hall. And Omar's sources are giving him the scoop about former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, which Omar will share with us in a second. And then there's New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. He's still deciding. Seven candidates have officially declared so far. Okay, Omar, what's Chris Christie going to do? All right, well, uh, sources are telling me he's going to join them. So uh, as we understand, uh, next Tuesday or this coming Tuesday in New Hampshire at a town hall, St. Anselm College, he's expected to announce his bid for the presidency in the 2024 race. Now, this was a decision that over the past few weeks, sources close to him have told me he had been mulling, talking to stakeholders. Should I do it? Should I not do it? And clearly he got to the point where he decided uh, he wanted to run. At least that's what we're expecting. Now, uh, the question I'm sure a lot of you all are wondering (laughs) is why? You know, he he didn't quite You could see that question. I did did see it. I did see it. uh, And, you know, I I, I think back in, in, you know, in 2016, he didn't finish, I think, as high as he thought he would. And so this time around, it's already a crowded field. And I think what they feel in their camp is that no one in the field right now is directly attacking the polled frontrunner, which is former President Trump, and their camp feels, and Chris Christie has, has alluded to this himself in previous interviews, he feels that he is the only candidate that is willing to take on Trump directly head-to-head, and he feels that's what it's going to take to knock him off his perch right now. It's interesting. He's already been doing that. I mean, he's already been calling yeah. him. He's already been, you know, he's a, a commentator on a different network, and he's already, I think, recently called him, President Trump, a child? a coward, and Putin's puppet. Yeah, I mean, and clearly it's part of what I think we're we're going to hear as part of this town hall when it gets going. I mean, obviously this will set the tone for the entire campaign. The question, though, is where is he starting from? And just in the past two weeks, CNN did some polling where uh, they asked Republican voters and Republican-leaning voters, and they looked at who is their first choice for the GOP primary. You see Trump and DeSantis. 
double digits, Trump way ahead, DeSantis way ahead. But then you got Pence, who we expect to announce, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, and then Chris Christie at 2%. But here's a more interesting one. In that same poll, the same group of voters, Republican voters and likely uh, and Republican-leaning voters, were asked, who would you absolutely not support for the nomination? You see who was at the top. Chris Christie, 60%. So that's not the poll that you want to be at the top of. And that's not to say that's where you will end. But clearly, when you begin this campaign, there is a lot of work to be done on uh, the perception that he he has among at least the voters that were polled and his perception among many Americans. And we saw those polls, but what do they say? What would his team say if you said, look, it doesn't seem as though there's much evidence to back up the idea that you could that, that Chris yeah. Christie could get enough support to really make a difference to be a real contender. I mean, how do they argue against what the polls are showing and what primary voters have decided in the past? We know how how fond they are of, of Donald Trump. Right? So that that last point, I think, is, is the key point. Where if if I were to be in a spin room or out on the campaign somewhere, I would say that well, this is just indicative of the the vitriol against him because look who's leading in the pool, polls: Trump fans, DeSantis fans, and if. Those are the people that are, you know, in theory, the majority are hating on Chris Christie, then clearly he may be striking a nerve. Clearly there may be a market to actually attack there to make some inroads. So that's what I would say. I don't know if that's actually the case. I think we're going to have to see how this campaign begins. But even at a town hall event last month, uh, Chris Christie, not only did he lay out he wants to be the one to attack Trump head on, but he was also pretty transparent that he and Trump used to work together. It used to be much closer. They they were not always, he didn't want to give the impression that he was some never-Trumper and is now out for blood. But instead, he said this at a recent town hall. You're talking to somebody and hearing from someone who believed I could help make him better, wanted him to do what was best for the country, and he failed me even worse than he failed you. So I'm not going to stand around and let this happen. Now, if I decide to run, I'll be able to try to do something directly about it. And that is the bottom line where he feels, I tried to help, I couldn't, and now you all have to help me get him out. Hmm. This is play. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think it will be interesting. He's an interesting person, as you know, Elena, from covering him. I have at times as well. Um, so, all right, we'll watch that. Thank you. And that was what you were watching last night. That was what you were on the lookout for. <laughs> I was on the lookout for. I said we are in the yes. danger zone, and yes. I didn't know that zone was coming as quickly. You as did, are but... psychic. That's what I'm taking away from this, Omar. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right, CNN is all over the 2024 race. Make sure you tune into our two town halls next week, Sunday night. Jake Tapper moderates a town hall with Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley. That's at 8 p.m. And then Wednesday night, Dana Bash moderates another town hall with former VP Mike Pence. That one is at 9 p.m. All right. So would arming teachers with, of course, guns make students safer during school shootings? Well, there's a new survey on how teachers feel about that question. And Miguel has the reporting. That's next. Arming teachers with guns is part of the debate over how to stop school shootings. But how do teachers feel about it? Well, a new report from the Rand Corporation finds that more than half of teachers believe that arming teachers would make students less safe. Miguel has more on this. So what do we learn? Yeah, you might think the numbers would actually be a little bit 
bigger. Uh, this, is a ran this is a randomized study that uh, Rand did, so it's not look talking to all teachers out there. This is focused on K through 12, but they, they did find that 54% of teachers out there uh, believe that having uh, guns in schools make them less safe. 20% said safer, and 26% said eh, it probably doesn't matter one way or the other. There's about... This is K through 12 teachers are looking at. It's about 3 million teachers. Given those numbers, it would mean about 550,000 teachers would be willing or would be interested in carrying a gun to their classroom, into class. Okay, I have a pop quiz for you guys mm, now. Here we go. So they also asked teachers what th their biggest concerns were. Given all the shootings, what do you think the biggest concerns were? Bullying. How did you, did you read the study? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I posted. Of All course right. I read it. Bullying. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I actually went to the study. How, how big a concern do you think guns were for, say, for, for teachers? Like guns in school? Just guns, guns in schools. Or, uh, or, or is gun violence in schools? I, I don't know. A third out of, or maybe ranking? Yeah, third. So bullying, 48%, almost, almost 49% thought bullying was the, the, the right. they were most concerned with that. Guns, guns in schools? 5% mm. in this study, which is shocking, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that uh, that there wouldn't be more teachers concerned about that. The second one was student fights and then violence against teachers and other staff. Active shooter was the fourth on the list. I, I, mean, I have to believe it's because they deal with bullying every day. Yeah. 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 That's just much more prevalent. I mean, obviously, we do a lot of school shootings. We cover a lot of them. But in their daily lives, I just have to believe bullying, I mean, between online, between in-person. The, the cyberbullying especially, yeah. I mm -hmm. think they're especially concerned. The other thing interesting about this study is there, the race, gender, demographics also played a, a role into all of this. Um, white men. Uh, were more apt to feel that they would either take a gun to class or feel safer with guns in schools than African-Americans or Latinos. Um, rural uh, sure. teachers, men in rural areas, were more comfortable um, uh, with guns in schools. So it, it covered a lot of ground. There's not a lot of... You would think there's been a lot of research on this sort of stuff, but there really hasn't been. So Rand Corporation... And it's only, you know, these studies are sometimes... It's hard to tell because they're randomized study... Uh, it's only about a thousand teachers that they actually surveyed, and they come up with these numbers. But it is interesting. And, and half a million is still a lot. That's quite a lot of teachers willing to. Can you imagine all of those teachers actually being, being armed? It, it's a lot, and I think the concern uh, from from many teachers is if you introduce guns into schools, into classrooms, you you give students un access to a gun. You give, you put a gun in a situation then it can be sure. fired. But, you, you know, make sure on, it's on the flip side, I think that people who like this idea would say, well, if you knew that, uh, you know, 500,000 teachers had guns, maybe people, there'd be, school shootings would stop. Maybe. Although in Uvalde and other places where you had uh, uh, security with, with weapons, it didn't work out so well. Yeah. Um, it, it is never very clear. These things are incredibly confusing, terrifying, and difficult. So... It is not clear that mm. guns in schools is, would help. This, I find this study fascinating. And I feel like from all the conversations I have on Capitol Hill with members about just gun reforms, like this is a core issue about, well, with the gun debate, are more, like a lot of Republicans saying, are more teachers, have more guns in schools. Not only, to your point, Allison, about maybe it would be a deterrence, but also then maybe one of these teachers could get involved. And that's a huge, I know, core of the argument that a lot of lawmakers on Capitol Hill believe. And then, of course, the flip side being that, 
why have this in the environment? And so um, I'm glad you brought this. Like, I just find this fascinating that so many teachers think it's a good thing. Yeah, they have lots of follow-up research as well that they'd like to do, particularly on on bullying uh, and cyberbullying especially, um, and then the, the interplay of guns in schools in our society. Um, I think we're, for as many shootings as we have in this country, the, the, the roots of it and sort of the practical side of it really hasn't been looked at enough. So hopefully... We're on that road now. Yeah. And it almost, I was just saying real quickly, it almost mirrors when you look at a lot of times the, when it comes to gun deaths, gun violence, you know, what gets focused on it are these massive public events, whether it's a school shooting or, you know, the shootings in public spaces. But you, you tend to see a lot of the mass killings or a lot of the, the firearm deaths happen at home. They happen from suicides. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that trend mirrors itself a little bit in these results that the mm-hmm. teacher's biggest concern is bullying. Right. And and so while the arming teachers gets all this debate and, you know, you see how low their concerns were about firearms in the school, that layer of what is happening when these kids are away from parents or, or teachers. Right. Um, and it's connected in some way. I mean, as you yeah. point out, that, that there's actually a connection between the bullying and what happens at home and certainly with suicides. Um, thank you for telling us all of that, Miguel. Okay, a former member of the infamous Manson family who was convicted for taking part in two murders during the summer of terror in Los Angeles could be one step closer to parole. Athena is going to explain next. A major court victory for former member, a former member of the infamous Manson family. A California appeals court ruling that convicted murderer... Leslie Van Houten, who's now in her 70s and serving concurrent life sentences, can be granted parole. The court reversing California Governor Gavin Newsom's decision to deny her release. Athena's covering this story. Okay, so why did the court decide this, Athena? Well, this is, uh, by the way, uh, the, this is about the 2020 rejection by Governor Gavin Newsom. That was the fourth time she was denied parole. She's now been denied a fifth time by Governor Newsom, but this is about that case. And when he denied the parole, he, he cited the extreme nature of the crime. This was a really grisly, gruesome murder and said that she hadn't sufficiently demonstrated that she'd come to terms with all the reasons she ended up joining this murderous cult. Well, this this court, the appeals court, uh, disagreed. They said that, that Gavin did not have any, any facts to lead to this conclusion. And they put out uh, this statement. They said, uh, Van Houten provided extensive explanation as to the causative factors leading to her involvement with Manson and commission of the murders. And the record does not support a conclusion that there are hidden factors for which Van Houten has failed to account. The governor's refusal to accept Van Houten's explanation amounts to unsupported uh, intuition. And so they, they rejected the conclusion that he had come to. And uh, now she's on the verge or this paves the way for her to potentially be released. But it may not be so easy. So basically, they think that she has been contrite enough. They think that she's done work in prison. I mean, because this is such a sensational case, I mean, the, there's there's very few cases, more than the Manson family, but they think that she has done enough in these decades? Well, well, on, on her side, her argument is that she's she's been contrite. She has apologized to the family. She's gotten two degrees, uh, two college degrees during this, uh, the, the more than 50 years she's been in, in prison. She's tutored uh, fellow prisoners and been a model prisoner. But, you know, Governor Jerry Brown, before Governor Newsom, have they, but they've both rejected parole for her several times and generally saying that she's still a threat to society and uh, saying some version of the crime was just so heinous. And she's, you know, she's, she's done things like blame drugs or blame her 
dependent personality and hasn't really taken full responsibility. All I good mean, for her, but where, where's the, fam the, the victims' families on this? I mean, they can't be thrilled. Well, they're not thrilled. We know that a sister of Sharon Tate, now she was, this woman, uh, Leslie Van Houten, was convicted of killing uh, a, a couple. So this was a supermarket executive and, and his wife uh, helping with that killing. And then she was convicted of conspiracy in the killing of those five at director Roman Polanski's house, including Sharon Tate. And so that that's uh, Sharon Tate's sister has said that no one of the Manson family should ever be allowed out of prison. They should all have to serve life terms. And they also uh, spoke with uh, the grandson of the supermarket executive, Alino uh, LaBianca. Here's what he had to say. They're making a decision to allow a murderer to come back into your neighborhood, my neighborhood. Last time they were in my neighborhood, they killed my family. And so that is, there's, there's still really raw emotions around this, this terrible crime that happened back in 1969. Go ahead, Elena. Wow. No, I was going to ask a similar question to Miguel. And also, I mean, not just the families, but like you said, Allison, this is such a massive case that everyone has heard of, right? Like, what have you heard what the public's reaction has been to this? Are people against it? I mean, I feel like I've always heard of people having such strong opinions about the Manson family and the murders. Well, in this, this the, the case we're talking about now, the, the 2020 rejection, there were all sorts of people uh, signing an online petition by Change.com. Mm -hmm. It was more than 100,000 people saying, keep her keep her in prison. Mm -hmm. and, and when I talk about how grisly this was, I mean, Jerry Brown, Governor Brown, laid out some of these details and explaining why he still thinks she should stay, stay put. And, you know, this, this, this woman used a, put a pillowcase over the wife that was killed in this, in this murder, put a lamp cord around her neck, tackled her, basically wrestled her onto a bed and pinned her down by, while two others stabbed her dozens of times and then began stabbing the, this woman herself. She gave an interview in 1994, so more than 20 years after the conviction, um, the initial conviction, and, and admitted to stabbing this woman in the lower back 16, around 16 times. Hmm. So it, she's not denying that she did this, but she's arguing that it's time for her to be released. And she's argued this several times. As I mentioned, she was first offered, uh, or she was, she was first granted parole back in 2016, but she's been denied again and again and again. And they believe that there's going to be a court fight over this as well. So the, the California Attorney General's office isn't going to just uh, sit down and, and, and set this aside. They're going to ask for a review by the Supreme Court. They're going to, the, the lawyer for Van Houten thinks they're even going to uh, file a petition to or file a motion to mm -hmm. stay so that she has to stay in prison while this Supreme Court review goes on. All right. Keep us posted on all of that. Thank you for that reporting. All right. Tomorrow on CNN This Morning, more on how the popular weight loss drug Ozempic can help people overcome addictions, what the research is now revealing. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.